I would ask you to turn to the 40th Psalm in your Bibles, the 40th Psalm, Psalm 40. You can take one of the black Bibles that are in front of you. It's, I think it will help you stay with me as you move through, and we move through this 17-verse Psalm. This, it is my plan that this will be our, our last Psalm for this year in which it is my goal to go through about a decade of psalms, 10 psalms a year. And so we will finish the 30s, but we actually dip into the 40s, but we finish the fourth decade of the psalms with Psalm 40 this morning. Waiting can be so difficult. You know what I mean? It was for the preschoolers who were subjects of an experiment called the marshmallow test. You might know what I'm talking about. The experiment began in the 1960s, actually, with a psychologist, Walter Mischel, professor of Stanford University. Children were told that they could have a single treat, such as a marshmallow, right now, Or if they would wait while the experimenter went on an errand for, say, 15, 20 minutes, they could have two marshmallows if they waited. And And they filmed video footage of these kids. Some of these kids immediately could not wait, took the marshmallow and said, I don't care for two, I want it now. For others, you see the different tactics in which Children would sit there what felt like forever as they tried to wait. They struggle. Some would cover their eyes so they wouldn't look at the marshmallow. Some rested their heads on their shoulders or, I mean, on their arms. They would talk to themselves, sang, even tried to go to sleep. Waiting is so hard sometimes. Delayed gratification is difficult. And especially when you're waiting for relief in the midst of great pain and trial. David says in the several Psalms leading up to Psalm 40, I'll review them to you. Verse Psalm 37, he said, wait for the Lord and keep his ways and he will exalt you and you will inherit the land. Or Psalm 38, but as For you, O Lord, do I wait, he prays to the Lord. Or Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And then we come to this psalm, and he begins the psalm. And I would say in some ways, in a joyful climax of all of these psalms in which he's waiting or saying to God he's going to wait or calling us to wait, he says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined his ear to me and he heard my cry and basically he answered me. This psalm that we're going to look at this morning is a unique psalm compared to almost all the other psalms. They don't lay out just quite like this. This psalm is one part 
jubilant song of thanksgiving and praise. And we find that especially in verses 1 through 10, maybe verse 11. And then it, it shifts to desperate crying out in lament. Verses 11 through 17. David praises God for his deliverance as he patiently waited upon God, and then he pleads for God once again to come and work. Okay, so this psalm, I want us to walk through the psalm, and I want to bring something out here at the end. I want us to walk through this psalm, and I want you to see the progression of what David does here. And I'm going to divide it up into four categories. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 5, so if you could follow with me, I think it'll, it'll pop up on the screen somewhat, but or if you want to look at your Bibles, verses 1 through 5, we find David saying that deliverance is experienced. He experienced God's deliverance. He waited, and he prayed, and God answered, and trust was grown, and his heart was renewed with joy, and he, he couldn't let it out, couldn't keep it in, but had to let it out to everybody. Let's look at it. I waited for the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. It was as though I was sunk in a bog, and he drew me up out of this. He set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards me, none can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Now, do you get the tone here? Verses one through five, David is overwhelmed with deliverance has been experienced, and he praises God. He declares God's praise, and he, he says, a, a song has been put in my heart, a new song. He's basically, and he, notice he doesn't just say, others may hear it, others may see it in fear as they see this new song or praise in my life because it's not just a literal song that he's gonna sing in a church or a congregation or a tabernacle, but he's saying, like my life has been put into a song. I am praising God, I am rejoicing. God has done for me. That's verses one through five. And, and we can all glean on this and go, God answers prayer. God wants us to pray. God does this kind of work in our lives. Oh, I want this. I, and there's not one of you that sits here that's a Christian or even not sure if you're a Christian, but you're wanting the things of God and you want the divine power to come down and answer and bring you deliverance. Not one of you could say, I don't want that. You'd all say, I would love for this to be my testimony. Some of you would say, that is my testimony. If you're a Christian, it is our testimony at a big level 
And that's what he did for our soul in saving us. Now let's, let's shift to the next, I guess, stanza or verse progression of this psalm. Verses 6 through 10, we see devotion expressed. So God delivered me, so what do I do? How can I not devote myself to this delivering God? Verses 6 through 10, he expresses an obedience to God from the heart and then a praise to God, to God's people and saying, you got to praise this God that has delivered me. Let's look at it. Let me read it for you, if you'd follow along. David says, in sacrifice and offerings, he's now praying to God, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. I think it's saying, you've given me an ear for your heart, your word, so I listen and I'll be attentive to your law. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now, this is a little strange if you're thinking about and going, what is he saying? In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Hey, look back at the Torah. Look at the early books of the Bible. And God did require. And God is pleased by offering these sacrifices. So is David contradicting the Bible? And the the reality is, I don't think so. David is not saying Let's just throw out the Old Testament law. Jesus hadn't come yet. I think he's saying, he's using in a hyperbole, and he's saying to express this mindset that not mere sacrifice, not mere offerings is enough, but a heart that takes these sin offerings, these praises, these offerings to the Lord, and is not hypocritical, but with wholehearted devotion obeys the Lord from the heart. He then says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Now, what book is David referring to, we could ask? Well, it could be the Old Testament law. He could be specifically referring to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Remember, who is David? David is either the anointed king, about to become king, but I think at this point he is the king of Israel at the time, and he knew the law of God. And in Deuteronomy 17, I think it's around 18 and 19, it said to all the future kings of Israel, when you become a king, you are to take this book of the law and instructions to kings, and you are to take scrolls, and you are to copy yourself the words of the law in order that you would obey God's law with all your heart. You, the king, are under authority, and you are to obey the Lord your God. And I think David is now saying, in the book that's written me, the king, he says, it's written in the scrolls of me, And I say to the Lord, I delight to do your will, O God, my God. It is written not just on this piece of paper, the scroll that I'm to write out. It is written upon my heart, you, my deliverer, King. And then he shifts in verses 9 and 10. He He can't contain himself. 
I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverances within my heart. I just didn't keep them there. Oh, they're there, but they don't stay there. But I have spoken of your faithfulness, I think, to his family and to his congregation, to his kingdom, to his court, to all around him. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love. That's that word, hased, your covenant-keeping love and your faithfulness who keeps your promises all of the time. I've not kept it from the great congregation. And so you find verses 1 through 5, come and listen to my deliverance. He heard my prayer. I waited and he answered. And this is the effect it had on me. I want to obey him. I want to sur- I'm surrendered to him. Oh, how I want to love his law. And I want you to do as well. I want you to see and hear and trust in the Lord. I want you to hear of the great deliverances in the congregation. I want you to hear of it, all of you. God is a saving God. I mean, isn't that, shouldn't that in some ways be our prayer and our cry as Christians? We should say, God saved me. God rescued me. We just, we, we saw it in the communion. We experience it, we should sing of it, and we sing of it every Sunday. And it should lead us to not just going through the motions. I go to church, I tithe, I do these different things. God doesn't take pleasure in those things and those things alone. He doesn't delight in us just going through the formalities without a heart that is, is David-like in these verses. Okay, so that's, can I say that's part one of the psalm. Two sections, part one. Then there is around verse 11. 11, I've, I've, as I've looked at 11, 11 could go for the first part or the second part. Let's just call it the hinge. 11 is the hinge as it moves into a very different, a different keynote. If Jay was up here leading verses 1 through 10, it would be a little more fast moving and it would be praise and, and rejoicing. And then he would shift and change keys and it would go into a minor key, a minor key of lament. But there's a hinge, verse 11, and what we find in verses 11 through 15, I guess let's call it part three, or, or section three, part, of, part one of, part two, section one, and he says, and I see deliverance is again requested. He received it, but he's still asking for it. Look at verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy. He's confident. David knows he needs mercy. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Now here's the shift, verse 12, to the end of this chapter, really. For evils have encompassed me, and they're beyond number. My iniquities, my sins, have overtaken me. And I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. What we find here is David is crying out here and he's saying, I am overwhelmed. I know some have said this must be two psalms. This is not one psalm. 
I think it is one psalm. I think it teaches us something as we get these two sides. But David is saying, I have evil and evil is all surrounding me and they're attacking me and it's without number. I think about my own sins and it just overtakes me. And David probably wasn't a bald man because he uses this illustration and he says, the sins are more than all of the hairs on my head. And then in verses 13 through 15, he does what you do in lament. In verses 12 and 13, he declares, he continued through all this passage, he says, be pleased, O Lord, deliver me. O Lord, will you hurry? Will you make haste to help me? Will you let, let those who are my enemies, they're trying to put me to shame, would you put them to shame and Would you not let them snatch away my life? Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. They're taunting David. He has enemies that are taunting him because of his affliction. He has his own guilt he thinks about as he goes, I am a sinner and I have messed up here. And maybe some of these sins, some of these hardships that are coming in my life are because they're coming back on my head because I wasn't a good father and Absalom has just rebelled and gone off and taken the kingdom. Maybe it's that. Or I look back and I, the consequences of me sleeping with Bathsheba, someone else's wife, committing adultery and then murder of Uriah. I don't know what it is, but he is feeling overwhelmed and he cries out to God once again for deliverance. And this psalm ends, verses 16 through 17, with what I'll call dependence declared. This is a beautiful, glorious, we need these verses to put on our lips and enter into our prayers between now and when we die. We're going to need these over and over again. Look with me at these verses. David says, but may all who seek you, now notice the hope May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. But as for me, I am poor and needy. This is the first time of all the times David has talked about the poor and needy throughout all his Psalms. But now Psalm 40, this is the first time David says, I am poor and needy. I am, I the king am poor and needy. But The Lord takes thought for me. Just love that. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Okay, this passage, all of it, all 17 verses from the songs of praise to the dirge of lament, This psalm calls the believer to trust, to live, and to struggle in the midst of these, of two worlds. Do you see the two worlds that David is living in? And and I'll just argue we live in. The two worlds of the psalm are answered prayer and unanswered prayer. Of out of the pit... He took me out. 
But at the end of the psalm, it seems like he's back in the pit. On a rock, God took me up and put my feet on a rock. And back down in the miry clay, in the bog. Secure, end of the psalm, suffering. Singing praise and singing lament. Waiting patiently and begging God to act as soon as possible. That's the world we, that's the two worlds we live in. We live between. We have one leg on one side of God's delivered me, one leg, one, st- one foot on the other. That's, I'm feeling like it's falling apart. And we are living between two worlds. We're living in a world where Christians are justified and declared righteous, but we're not yet truly holy or sanctified in so many ways. We're saved, but we're still sinners desperately in need of grace every day. We're loved, but we're under God's discipline. We're promised eternal life, but we're still in a fallen world with there's still so much misery and pain. David trusts in the Lord in the midst of this. And do you see that in this passage? He wants you and I to hear these words that he says when he says in verse 4, oh, blessed is the person who makes the Lord his trust and doesn't turn to the proud. David trusted in the Lord and he waited patiently. He trusted in the Lord and put his hope in God. David trusted in the Lord and he longed for God's people to see the impact and for themselves to trust in the Lord. And I pray that in the, in the, in the remainder time that we have this morning, I just, I, pr- I want to point you in a particular direction. I want to direct you where I heard an illustration this week by Tim Keller, a preacher and author who recently went to be with the Lord at a much younger age than we would all want him to go. It's this. When the people of Israel, in one of the most famous and epical stories in the Old Testament, when they were pressed against the Red Sea, remember that? That's in Exodus chapter 14. The, they, they fled Egypt and they go into the wilderness and they come up to the Red Sea that God directed them to. And they're up by the Red Sea and then Pharaoh changes his mind and he's going to come and he's going to destroy the people of Israel. He's angry and he's marching down with his army of chariots on them. And they cried out to the Lord and God opened the Red Sea. Even though Pharaoh's army was coming and it says in Exodus 14.22, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters were being a wall to them on their right hand and a wall on their left hand. Imagine that you and your family and your friends, you're going through the Red Sea and there's a wall on each side. Now, I'm sure that some of the people, that the Israelites who are being delivered as they come through the Red Sea, I'm sure some of them walked through and went, look at what God has done. He alone is our salvation. Eat your heart out, Pharaoh. Bring it on. Our God has us. I'm sure that was some of them. And then I I think there's probably no doubt that there were some Israelites 
who walked through that Red Sea with the walls on each side going, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. As both groups walked completely through the Red Sea to the other side with two very different qualities of their faith, their salvation wasn't dependent on the intensity or the quality of their faith. All who walked through the Red Sea were saved. Why? Because it wasn't about the quality of their faith, but about the object of their faith. Those that were fearing and those who were confident. Their object of their faith was the God who spread the sea, who led them into the wilderness, who was going to feed the man in the wilderness, who made promises to them. He was the object, and whether their faith was strong or their faith was weak, as long as they walked through where God told them to do it, God was their salvation, whether it was intense in their faith or weak in their faith. Now, so what I want to do as we, as we finish this psalm, I just, there, there's way more than this, but I just want to point you to a few things about this God in this psalm that should make our hearts go, okay, I feel in between the two worlds of answered prayer and unanswered prayer, praise and needing to cry out to God because I'm hurting. And for some of you, it's mostly hurting. For some of you, it's more on the other side. I want to give you five things about our God who is the object of our faith, that your faith might be really weak right now or strong. Look not to your faith, but look to this God. Five things. Number one, friends, from this psalm and all of the Bible, we, re- we need to be reminded that, number one, we have a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. We do. Who revives our hearts and gives us faith in him. Oh, believe that. Wait, my friend, on the Lord. He heard David's cry. He will hear the cry of every true child of God because God takes thought of us and because of Jesus Christ. He will in good time take care of us and take us out of the miry clay and put our feet on the solid rock. God's affliction, God afflicts us to bring us to our knees to let us know that he is our God and he will answer in his time. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take by this. You are not strong in faith, but he is strong in his response to you. And his ears towards your cries are so much better than your whispers of prayer. Your trust may be weak, but his trustworthiness to attend to your cries, and he only delays because he has calculated the wisest and best timing to care for you. That is the object of our faith, faith church. In good time, he revives our souls and gives us faith in him. He will answer, so don't stop crying out to a faith, a a prayer hearing and prayer answering God. Secondly, we have a God, I want you to see in this psalm, who thinks about us. God thinks about us personally, individually. He thinks about us with utmost love, wisdom, absolute unlimited resources, and 
power and strength. There's two places it brings this out that David rejoices. In verses four and five, and then at the end of the psalm, he says in verses four and five, God, you've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward me. None can compare to you. I will proclaim and tell of them but they're too, more, too much that I could ever tell of. There's so many. God's thoughts towards us are not just passive awareness. Oh yeah, he's there and he's in trouble. I wonder what's gonna happen. His thoughts towards us are done with greater love than any father who really cares for his daughter or son looks upon them, and he, a good and loving father, would never think about a child, know that child is in despair or trouble or in need of deliverance, and go, well, he's on her own. He's on his own, and she's on her own. He would never do that. He would only in wisdom wait, but he would think upon us and with absolute love, devotion, resources, and strength, and in due time, work. Verse 17, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Would you think this week about this? God does never, never forgets about us, never. His thoughts are ever towards you and whom he loves. He thinks about us through the life-giving filters of his perfect love, his perfect wisdom, his perfect resourcefulness, and his perfect might. You and I might enter into the scenario where our faith will keep our minds from being fixed on him, but he never forgets to fix his mind upon us. You and I are poor and needy. That only puts us in a position to be greater recipients of his mindfulness towards us, even when we're not mindful towards him. The God who thought the universe into existence and then spoke takes thought of us. And he does with perfect love, perfect wisdom. Let that feed your faith. Fix your mind not to your faith, but to the object of your faith. Let that move you to more praise and to more prayer. And let your waiting upon God be with the thought but the Lord takes thought for me. Thirdly, we have a God who saves and cares for us out of, keyword, out of a commitment of loving devotion that never fails. Verses 9 through 11, in two different sections, he says, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David can't constrain his lips, but says, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. What this is speaking to is, this is a God who acts because he goes, I promised I will set my love upon my people Israel, my people who are in Christ Jesus, my people who I've saved, I have not just thrown some blanket love out there. I put a special, committed, covenant, I'm never letting go kind of keeping my promise and I have my heart fixed upon them kind of saving and caring love. That's the kind of God that we have. Friends, you and I, 
on this earth, apart from this, we have never been committed to by anyone or anything like God has committed to us. The greatest husbands or wives or parents on earth are but a mere shadow to the devotion and commitment and care and salvation that this God gives, and it will never, ever fail. He will keep His promise. That's who you should fix your mind on. That's the object of your faith. And fourthly, we have a God whose love will preserve and protect us from all our sins and our enemies. David is in despair because of his enemies and his sin. And this psalm reminds us, you have a shelter from your sin and from your enemies. And it's this God. He says, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will preserve me, even though evil will compass me, my sins overtake me. Friends, the Lord Jesus Christ has pledged to take upon himself, and he did it on the cross, and he will never forsake you to your enemies or to your own sinful heart. It's grace that is greater than all your sins. Your sins, though they are many, his mercies are more. Your repentance to God and your faith, which is necessary to salvation of a heart that God receives, will never be the merit by which you receive God's mercy. The mercy and grace that is extended to you comes to us who have shallow repentance and faith. And yet he graciously comes and responds. He protects us. Oh, hurting heart from your own sin or your enemies or the heaviness of life, turn to the object of your faith the God of your salvation. And lastly, I declare to you the object of this faith in these verse, last verses. We have a God who turns our hurting hearts into eternally happy hearts. We sing of this all the time. Oh, rejoice, oh my soul, for your love is my reward. You've turned my mourning into dancing, Psalm 31 said. You've turned my sackcloth and you've, you've taken away the sackcloth and you've clothed me with gladness. Now, how does God do this? We live thousands of years later than when David wrote this psalm. Many years later, the true David came on earth and he fulfilled this psalm. He made the psalm possible for all of us. How, do, how does he do this, all these things that I've talked to about, to faithless sinners who run far, far from him far too often? We can pray this psalm to God because God sent himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became a man who cried out earnestly to Father, give me the sheep you intend for the good shepherd to save. This Jesus experienced deliverances and then, and the good pleasure of the Father, and it was his good pleasure to do his Father's will. He did what the law, weakened by the flesh, could never do. Jesus, like David, cried out to be delivered from the evils encompassed. So Jesus was swallowed up by those evils. The iniquities of 
not his own sins, but our sins overtook him and snatched him away on the cross. He was brought to a pit, to a miry clay. And Jesus was insecure on the cross so that we would be delivered for eternal security. Jesus was poor and needy on the earth to make us everlastingly rich. Jesus took our punishment. Christ had shame pressed upon him so that he would die and rise and then be the answer to all our prayers or to intercede for all our prayers. Jesus is God's yes to us. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the object. Jesus makes Psalm 40 and all the Psalms that apply to us and allow us to say, blessed is the person who makes the Lord his trust and refuge come true because Jesus interceded for us, became sin for us so that we would be covenanted to God forever. So tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to end with a song of expression of praise. Oh God, I pray that you would help us, whether Christian or if there are non-Christians here that are, are seeking, if they're, if they're seeking, it's because you are, you are first working and drawing them. And I pray that they would seek you and as the psalmist said in the psalm, let those who seek you rejoice and be glad. They would find rejoicing and gladness in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we, as we finish this time in this service and this weekend, we would, we would cherish that truth that it is so sweet to trust in Jesus, to take him in his word, to rest upon his promise, to know Thus saith the Lord, and that's all that matters. Oh God, please, make us a people who trust in between these two worlds of praise and lament, of answered and unanswered prayer. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.